Bible study groups and learn about God. We partnered with Kings Hill, Baptist, or Kings Hill Church in Boston. We hired a handsome new associate pastor. It's okay to laugh. Something can be both humorous and true. We performed a leadership training to grow and develop leaders here at FBCS. We assisted North Carolina Baptists on mission with their deep impact basketball camps in our community. We voted in four new deacons, two of which hadn't been ordained. Well, we ordained them all to maintain 12 deacons, a number before last year that we hadn't reached in recent memory. Our men's ministry and our women's ministry met 10 and 9 times respectively. A group of 13 went to Centrifuge Youth Summer Camp this summer, uh, and a group of 20 went to Fort Caswell this fall. And recently, we provided 60 children Christmas presents while their parents were incarcerated. I could go on. You guys do a lot. You're both generous with your money and your time. There's tons of stuff that I didn't list that we've done this year. Looking back, we've done all these great things. But church, if we're not careful, we'll find ourselves on the wrong side of today's passage. Today we're going to be in the book of Mark. And for those of you who don't know, I've been in the book of Mark with the youth all year long, from January until now. And we've actually got two weeks left till we finish up. I tried to get it in a year, but it was tough. I'll take shorter, less than a year today, I promise. So the passage that we're going to be in today came to mind when Pastor Bob asked me to preach in his absence. Uh, the Lord has really put this passage on my heart. In fact, I already used this um, in a basketball devotion at West Brunswick earlier this year. So this morning, find in your Bibles, Mark chapter 11, uh, verses 12 through 21. After you found it, go ahead and rise to your feet as we honor the reading of God's word together. Starting in verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he, being Jesus, was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it. And were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. You may be seated. So before we dive straight into the middle of Mark's gospel account, let's get some, some context. I'm going to catch you up to speed on the book of Mark. So the author is Mark, and that may be obvious, but who is Mark? Well, he's not a disciple. In fact, he's a full generation younger than the disciples. So John Mark is recorded in the book of Acts as an assistant to Paul in his missionary journeys and later in his life. We also see Mark with the apostle Peter. 
And early church tradition tells us that it's Peter's firsthand account of Jesus' life and ministry that Mark records, serving as Peter's amanuensis, his scribe. The book of Mark is very fast-paced. A common theme is the word immediately. Where other gospel accounts take paragraphs and pages, Mark can typically fit it into a sentence. In fact, if you listen to the gospel of Mark on audiobook, it takes you about an hour and a half. Compare that to the Gospel of Luke, which takes a full hour and 15 minutes longer than that. Of Mark's 16 chapters, the first 10 cover Jesus' three-and-a-half-year ministry, and the last six focus exclusively on the last week of his life. Because of this, the Gospel of Mark has earned the nickname, right, a Passion Week narrative with just an extended introduction. So, we've got the larger context for Mark. Let's zoom in on some context of today's passage. So it's, it's the day after Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, pictured on your screen. Right, he rides in on a donkey, right, and people welcome him, shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Right? His visit to the temple after that, and then his return to Bethany in the evening. We find in today's passage Jesus and the disciples coming again from Bethany back to the temple. You see, Jerusalem is packed. It's Passover week. Hundreds of thousands of people would gather and would travel to Jerusalem to worship and to celebrate Passover. And in fact, so many people would come, there were no vacant rooms in Jerusalem, and there would actually be a camp out around the city, or outside of the walls. And instead of partaking in this camp, right, in this makeshift city around the city itself, Jesus and his disciples would journey. They'd make that two-mile journey from Bethany to Jerusalem each day. Bethany being the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And they likely stayed in their home. Jesus would spend the last week of his life traveling between these two places. So now that we're caught up to speed, I want to identify three truths that we find in today's passage. In Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 21. The first being... Jesus curses unfruitfulness. So look with me in the text. On their way back to Jerusalem from Bethany, Jesus spots a fig tree. And, and when you first read this story, things get a little weird. Right? So in verse 12, we see this. So Jesus goes up to the fig tree hungry. Right? He's looking for a snack. But when he gets close, he sees the tree doesn't have any figs. He's led his disciples off of the beaten path off of the road between Bethany and Jerusalem into rougher terrain in search of some figs. But there aren't any figs. I wonder if his disciples at this moment, when they've gotten there, they're asking themselves, where's the fruit? This particular tree didn't even have small green figs known as pagum, like the one on your screen. While not tasty, these at least would take the edge off of your hunger. But no. Only leaves. So Jesus curses the fig tree. In verse 14 we see, he says, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. At first glance, it almost seems unfair to this poor fig tree. Jesus, what did this fig tree do to you? After all, Mark records in verse 13, it wasn't even the season for figs. And maybe he's lashing out. He's got a lot on his mind. I know I would be on edge if knowing four days from now I would be crucified and killed. 
Maybe this inconvenience with this fig tree gave him an outlet for his pent-up anxiety. Or maybe he was just hangry, the combination of hungry and angry that all men are susceptible to. For a while, I thought this was just something that my father-in-law Gary struggled with. But in my old age of 26, I realize I fall into this trap of hangriness as well. My wife, Casey, can attest to this. But no, Jesus isn't some petulant child throwing a tantrum or a man-child like myself. He's using this fig tree as a visual aid for his disciples. He's showing his disciples what's to come. He's foreshadowing the events of the day. So Mark sandwiches this strange account of a fig tree being cursed, withered, on either side of the cleansing of the temple. Where Matthew's gospel records these events as two separate happenings, one after the other, Mark helps us connect the dots here. You see, the fig tree, it promised fruit with its green leaves visible from a distance. But upon closer inspection, it was the opposite of what it showed to be. It bore no fruit. Jesus here is referring to the temple, the Sanhedrin that ran it, and the nation of Israel as a whole. Like the fig tree, the temple looks good from a distance, but upon closer inspection, it doesn't hold up. It doesn't pass the test. Jesus' curse on the fig tree is a condemnation of the temple and of Israel. Daniel Aiken, the president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, says it well. He says, the tree bore no fruit. Its leaves promised one thing, but it had not produced. It was a hypocritical fig tree. Sadly, this is what Israel had become especially the temple and the religious leaders who oversaw its operation. They gave an outward appearance of great spirituality and devotion to God, but proved to be hypocrites. It's easy to see the hypocrisy of the temple in today's passage. They're just like the fig tree. But don't we find ourselves like the fig tree more often than not, more often than we would like? We look good on the outside. We volunteer at church. We're here when the doors are open. We dress nice. We even might have a fancy Bible. And our Facebook page looks like we're living our best life. But aren't we just really good at hiding our sin? On the outside, we look Christ-like. But on the inside, our number one priority is me, myself, and I more often than not. More often than we would like to admit. We are more like the fig tree than we think. We're just as bad as the temple of Jesus' day, if not worse. So, Jesus curses unfruitfulness. And we know that the fig tree cursing wasn't just a hungry and frustrated Jesus. His curse on this hypocritical fig tree is a curse on the temple as well. It's a condemnation on our hypocrisy, our unfruitfulness also. The next section of text is often called, and is likely called in your Bible, the cleansing of the temple. But I think it could easily be called the condemnation of the temple, which leads me to my second point. Jesus rejects hypocrisy. Look with me in verse 15. So in verse 15, we see that Jesus enters Jerusalem once again and heads to the temple. He visited there without incident yesterday, but today will be very different, as you can see on your screen. So Jesus enters the Temple Mount into the 35-acre outer Gentile court and wreaks havoc. 
He wreaks havoc on those selling animals for sacrifice and exchanging money and drives everybody out. We see here a rare example of Jesus' emotions being recorded by Mark or any of the gospel writers. We see Jesus weep for his friend Lazarus earlier in the accounts. And now we see our Lord's righteous anger directed at the money changers and those who sold animals for profit. But why was Jesus so angry? What upset him so bad to flip tables and run everybody out? Well, James Edwards, in his commentary on Mark, says it better than me. He says, pilgrims were requested to bring an acceptable, perfect sacrifice that had to pass a rigorous inspection. Most chose, were really forced, to buy an approved animal certified by the mafia of temple priests backed by the powerful and corrupt Sanhedrin. The markup was shameful and immoral. Some estimate they charged 16 times the normal price. So Jesus comes into the temple mount that surrounds the temple. And he witnesses firsthand the extortion, the greed, and the hypocrisy of the temple and its workers. And guess what? He rejects it. He flips tables and runs everyone out. Now, I don't think all of these practices started and originated from evil intent. Right? Jesus rejects them and condemns them, but they were likely born out of practicality. Right? They, they charge a fee to exchange money. Well, good. They can put a portion of the profits into completing the temple, which would complete, be completed in A.D. 70. They're charging 16 times the normal price for an animal to be sacrificed. Well, these people, they traveled all this way, like often coming from as far as Asia and Europe and Africa, all coming to celebrate Passover. Right? Surely they would understand and surely they would pay more for convenience of buying it here rather than having to lug a sheep or a goat or a pigeon all the way to Jerusalem. And again, more money for the temple. They failed to realize or failed to care about the many barriers to worship that they had erected for all of these sojourners that traveled to the temple for Passover. Ill intent or not, they had made the house of God a house of corruption. They had made the temple the one place to go and to draw near to God and worship him into a revenue-generating business. And Jesus' response, we see here, was swift and decisive. He flipped tables and ran everybody out. You see, church, we, we can become the exact opposite of what we aim to be. It doesn't have to take malice or ill will towards our community. And in fact, it often happens when we love on our community. It's when we take our eyes off of Christ. It's when we take our eyes off of Christ and onto what we want to accomplish this year. That is when we get into trouble. When we make church a means to accomplish our will, we're missing the bigger picture. And that leads me to my third point. Jesus is a savior for all nations. The temple, like the fig tree, it looked good on the outside. Right, take a look at this recreation of Herod's temple. This would have been the temple that in Jesus' day. It's often been included 
in one of the lost wonders of the ancient world by historians both Christian and secular alike. So in Jesus' day, when he would have visited, it would have still been under construction. But even then, it would have been like nothing anybody had seen. Picture the thousands of pilgrims journeying to Jerusalem for Passover. And from the distance, they see Jerusalem, and they see the Temple Mount and the temple within. What an image of God's glory. All right, no matter how far they've traveled, where they're coming from, this is the house of the Lord. I can imagine it would make those last few miles easier as the excitement of seeing Jerusalem, the excitement of seeing the temple and its mount, urged them forward. Right, those last miles became easier. I can't help but picture my oldest daughter, Hazel. When we arrive home, we get out of the car, and she begins that short yet arduous for a two-year-old journey from the car door to the front door. She gets sidetracked sometimes. See, she's focused on the journey at hand, but something out of the corner of her eye catches her attention, her trampoline. And her eyes, when she sees this trampoline, just light up. She is no longer just trudging along, going inside. She's sprinting towards the trampoline. Not to where we want her to go, right, which is inside, but where she wants to go, to her beloved trampoline. This is that excitement that I think of, that I imagine that these travelers, these pilgrims, finally have. When they see the house of the Lord, they're almost there. Right? They can see it. They're getting close. What a sharp contrast to the reality of when they arrive and they enter into the Temple Mount only to find segregated courts and predatory pricing of everything that they need to worship God. You see, it looked promising. It looked promising like the fig tree. From a distance, it looked great. But just as the plant that Jesus cursed, there's no fruit. It doesn't hold up. It doesn't pass the test. This brings us to the heart of Jesus' anger over what his temple had become. Look at verse 17. The text says, by his actions and his word, he began to teach them. He then quotes Isaiah 56, verse 7. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. However, now citing Jeremiah 7, 11, he declares, but you have made it a den of robbers. The CSB translation, I think, says it better. It says, but you have made it a den of thieves. Do you think they realized that they had corrupted the temple? That they had corrupted the house of the Lord? I don't think so. I think corruption is a slow poison that starts out innocent enough, but happens when we misplace our priorities. When we rely on our understanding of ministry, our comfort zone for missions. When we rely on what we want to do, and that's the only thing that we do. In Jesus' day, it was popularly believed that when the Messiah came, he would purge the temple of Gentiles as part of establishing his throne, establishing his kingdom, ruling Israel and breaking it free from Gentile oppression. Instead, Jesus comes and cleanses the temple for Gentiles. Jesus had bigger ambitions than saving the nation of Israel from Roman oppression. His goal was greater than that. His goal 
to free us from the oppression of sin and death. For all the temple's splendor and greatness, it had become the exact opposite of what God ordained it to be. Instead of bringing people into God's presence, Israel had obscured it until no one could find it. We see here in today's passage, Jesus' words are harsh and cutting, but true. In church, his condemnation of the temple is a condemnation on our unfruitfulness and on our hypocrisy, on our corruption. But, the famous word, but God being rich in mercy enacted his righteous judgment on the temple. We see today, in today's passage, he cleanses the temple of corruption. But that's just the start. Four days from now, four days later, after the events of today's passage, and upon Jesus' death on the cross, the veil would be torn from top to bottom. Removing that barrier between man and the holy of holies, between us and God's presence. In his death and his resurrection, Christ has atoned for our sins. The Mosaic covenant has ended, and God's glory is accessible to all. He rendered the temple pointless. So let's review. One, first, in his wisdom, Jesus curses unfruitfulness. His cursing the tree was a teaching moment. It was a teaching moment for his disciples. It warned of the events of the day, what was to come. And it serves as a warning for us today. Second, in his righteous anger, Jesus rejects hypocrisy. He rightfully cleansed the corruption of the temple, and he rightfully rejects our hypocrisy today. And third, in his love, Jesus is a savior for all nations. Jesus fulfilled what the temple never could. He made a way for you and me to be saved through faith alone, by grace alone. So I ask you today, where's the fruit? Are you like the fig tree with nothing but leaves? You look good on the outside. Is our church? Do we look good from the road, but on the inside we have no transformation? Church, we've done a lot this year. But so had the temple in Jesus' day. If we're not careful, we'll become the fig tree of churches. We'll look good and we'll look busy, but we'll be no better than the temple. And this coming year, in 2024, we'll be busy, no doubt. But if we're not vigilant, if we're not intentional about prioritizing the sharing of the gospel with everybody and intentionally discipling one another, we'll be just like the fig tree. We'll have no heart change, no transformational discipleship. We'll become the opposite of what Jesus calls us to be. If not careful, we'll become a country club of believers right, rather than a gospel-sharing, Christ-centered church.
Jack my fancy little table here. Church, let's move into 2024 in obedience. Let 2023 year, the year 2023, be the last year of doing what we want to do. Of prioritizing me, myself, and I. Let's stop being busy with what we want to accomplish and start being busy for the Lord and what He wants to accomplish. If you're here this morning and you know you're the fig tree, you look good from the outside, but on the inside, you know you're not right with God. And you know he's calling you to repentance. I want to ask you, take that step today. Trust in Jesus. Come and see me. I'll pray with you. If you are saved today, but you recognize that you're more like the temple than you want to think. Right? You're busy with everything but doing God's will. And that you have you at the center of your life instead of God. I want to ask you. Let the final day of 2023 be the final day of making it about you. Come to the altar. Speak with your Savior. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much, Lord. I thank you for your word and the conviction that comes with it, but the encouragement that also comes with it. And Father, forgive us for being hypocrites. Forgive us for being fig trees, Lord. God, draw us close to you today. God, give us the boldness to step out into obedience. Lord, if there's anybody here this morning, God, that you're, you're pushing them, you're pressing on their heart, Lord. God, let today be a day of obedience. Father, we ask all these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.